See, we are not far from the end of this last book of Scripture. And this is one of those passages that you wish your colleague would have taken after all instead of dumping it on your patch. Oh, sorry, Phil. No. Um, Just the way it happened indeed. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Well, Revelation 20. (laughs) It's a complicated passage, a little cartoon. You need a bit of light relief uh, with a passage like this. Can you read at the bottom? Then again, it could just be a break in the clouds, uh, believe in the rapture. This is um, one of those passages in Scripture that has generated a huge amount of divergent opinions. It's one of those perplexing passages that, as you read it, it seems to challenge everything else that the New Testament might say. It's one of those passages that people have got really caught up with and made videos about and written books about and kind of has divided uh, churches 
and congregations and people. It has generated a whole set of specific language, big words that you're going to get to learn this morning. Aren't you excited about that? And you may thank God for Revelation uh, chapter 20. Anyone have, have you, have you come across the Left Behind series? We had a video clip, but our technology has left us behind this morning. And uh, in that, there's kind of this view in those stories that people are getting on with their life, and all of a sudden, people just get, disappear because they are raptured, and uh, people on earth are left, and the Christians are taken away. It all comes from an interpretation of this particular passage in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, I came across a little quote, a bumper sticker that I quite liked. Uh, In case of rapture, can I have your car? (laughs) Hey-ho. Anyway, so um, onwards. Revelation 20, here's the hard bit. Revelation 20 has spawned a whole lot of different interpretations. As you were reading it, it talks about a thousand years, six times. It is... Um, uh, that's where we get the word millennium. It isn't about millennium bugs and millennium bridge and the, the, uh, the dome that was in London. This is about uh, this particular what thing that John sees and describes as a thousand years, a thousand year reign. And it seems to be in this passage that in the thousand year reign, Satan seems to be bound. Jesus kind of gathers together those who, uh, it says here, are beheaded, particular martyrs, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. And it says this is the first resurrection in verse 5. There's a blessedness in that, in the first resurrection. And then implies in verse 7 and onwards that for a short time, Satan will be released and he will try to gather as many people against God as possible. They will attack God's city. They will be destroyed. There's no kind of shadow of doubt in that. And then everyone will be raised in uh, the implication of the, uh, the first resurrection. There's a second resurrection. And then um, everyone will be judged. Chapter 20 is that difficult chapter before we get to the really fantastic chapters of 21 and 22 that speak of the new heavens and the new earth and God's ultimate destiny for those who believe. So, in this thousand years, people have come up with different positions to describe their particular take on this particular chapter of this particular kind of thing of a thousand years. And there are those that get called premillennialists. There are those who get called postmillennialists. There are those who get called dispensationalists. And there are those, oh, amillennialists, dispensationalists, and finally panmillennialists. Oh, dropped off the bottom. (laughs) So, I'm not going to ask for a straw poll of which would you like kind of the X factor of the millennialist views. But I thought, because, you know, to be honest, this is a bit of a debate that isn't so much around in England. But if you read in any texts or any commentaries or any books, um, or if you search on the internet, this kind of comes up lots. And actually, it does affect what we do and how we believe. That's kind of the importance of these views. But I'm sure you're all really keen to know what these particular words mean. Aren't you? Good answer. I don't have to stop now. 
Okay, the premillennialists. Let's start with them. Millennialists is a, again drawn from the word for uh, a thousand. Premillennialists um, are like this. They they say it's to do with when Jesus returns in relation to the millennium, this thousand-year reign. Premillennialists uh, say Jesus will return and will reign for a, a literal reign of a thousand years. Now. I'm kind of generalizing here. If you went and studied this at length, you would say, but some people that are premillennialists have a figurative understanding of a thousand years. This is a complicated area, okay? I'm trying to just give you the broad brush. And if you want to get get into it yourself, you're more than welcome to do so. Jesus will return and reign literally for a thousand years in a kind of plain reading of Revelation 20. In that, Jesus will reign with the martyrs in Jerusalem, those who've been beheaded. And uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years before his release and his final judgment. That's the pre-millennialist view. In other words, Jesus will return and he will reign with his people, with the martyrs, for a thousand years before Satan is finally destroyed and final judgment. Next, we have the, um, the post-millennials or the millennialists. Uh, what do they think that are different to the pre? Well, they believe that Jesus returns after a thousand-year period. So rather than before a thousand-year, post meaning after. Get that? See the difference? So rather than before, after. Um, they can be uh, literalists in terms of if this is a genuine thousand years, or they can be symbolic thousand years, just a long period of time. What categorizes this is that there will be glory and prosperity uh, for the church before the return of Jesus, and it will be characterized by kind of righteous living and a widespread acceptance of the church, that, uh, of the gospel, that there will be kind of glory days for the kingdom and the rule and reign of God, because Satan's uh, been bound. The church is reigning and ruling over the world. Satan's already bound, and the ground, the world, is open for taking. Do you get that? Okay. Next one. Good old dispensationalists. Um, dispensation is a, a word not to do with pharmacy, uh, but is uh, to do with a time or a period. And these people who hold dispensational views on Revelation 20 see the kind of whole sweep of human history uh, or God's created history in seven periods. And this millennial period is the last of those. They see it as this literal a thousand years after the church and believers are raptured away. The Left Behind series would be dispensationalists. And I had this little video clip where there's people doing their things in life and suddenly there's nobody there. And there's people left at the dining room table and walking on the street and in the traffic and all that. Suddenly people are, are whisked away. It's a dispensational view. Revelation 20. They see uh, the end of history after Christ returns that Jesus will reign. It's particularly about the restoration of Israel. That Jesus will reign with the Jews and the restoration of Israel and particularly around Jerusalem and that Satan is bound for a thousand years before his release and final judgment. With me so far? Are you choosing your options wisely? And the amillennialists. A means uh, against, negative. So in other words, saying we don't really think about the millennial in kind of one of these terms that the pre, post, and dispensationalists think of. They think, amillennialists think of a thousand years as a symbolic number. Or figurative. In other words, like many things in Revelation, it's a symbolic number, like the 666, or the, the, the sevens, or the twelves, um, or the 144,000, that they are representative of something else. They're not to be taken literally 
we get ourselves in a bit of a tangle if we take it symbolically, uh, literally. And uh, they see this, uh, this thousand years in Revelation 20 as the time of kind of the church. In other words, this symbolic thousand years, this symbolic millennium began with the coming of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas and as he grew in his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And with the coming of Pentecost, they see that as the first coming of Jesus. And that this symbolic time that we are now experiencing is this, uh, is this kind of refer- reference to a thousand years in Revelation 20 and that Jesus will come in his second coming and this thousand years will end. How is the church in this period? It's, well, it's got increasing influence of the church and the growth of the kingdom through these last days. In other words, taking uh, passages like Isaiah 9, uh, importantly, uh, that we read at Christmas, the increase of his government will know no end. Uh, the, um, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that sees the ever-increasing effect and influence of the reign and rule of God until his second coming. It's not to say that everything will be better, but recognizing a bit like the parable of the wheat and the tares, that as the kingdom of God grows, so the kingdom of evil and that which opposes grows. That as we see the reign and rule of God increase, the weeds grow. And it's not till the final judgment that God separates out or uh, removes the weeds. Satan's power is limited in the sense of this understanding of being bound as Christ has conquered him through the cross and bound him, his effect, his influence, his power is substantially diminished, but still he is at work, ultimately until Christ judges him and throws him into the fiery lake. In terms of a resurrection, what does it mean? What's the first in the resurrection there? A millennialist would view the resurrection, meaning this first resurrection is kind of like the born again moment when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we're born again, they would see that as as we are regenerated, we become new creations, and we then are bound in Christ through baptism, through faith, to him, that if we would physically die, we would not be separated from him. And ultimately, the second resurrection, spoken of in Revelation 20, is when everyone is raised back to life, as we read. Okay? There's a look of glary, you know, bleary eyes coming. What about panmillennialists? Well, they're a bit of a, a group who think, well, it'll all pan out all right in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you think that's the best option entirely. Some time ago, I came. Uh, this is a story upon a fellow who was carrying a Bible. Are you a believer? I asked him. Yes, he said excitedly. I've learned you can't be too careful. So I thought I'd check him out. Virgin birth, I asked. Yeah, I accepted it, said the stranger. Deity of Jesus? No doubt. Death of Christ on the cross? He died for all people, was his response. Could it be that I was face to face with a true Christian brother? Perhaps. Nonetheless, Continued with my checklist. Status of man, sinner in need of grace. Yes. Definition of grace, God doing for man what man can't do. Yes. Return of Christ in his second coming, imminent, said the man. Hallelujah. What about your belief about the Bible? Inspired. Wonderful. The church, the body of Christ, getting even better, getting excited now. A true brother in Christ. 
conservative or liberal? Conservative. Heart beginning to beat faster. Heritage. Southern Congregationalist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationalist, Triune Convention. Me too. What branch? The pre-millennial, post-tribulation, non-charismatic, King James, one cup communion. Ah, oh, my eyes misted over. I only had one other question. Is your pulpit wooden or fiberglass? <laughs> fiberglass, he responded. I threw my hand and stiffened my neck. Heretic, I said, and left him. It's amazing how it's amazing how people kind of get really worked up about kind of these things. That was a bit of a joke, by the way. <laughs> she does so well through these big words. <laughs> Must try harder on those, I think. It's the way I tell them I need <laughs> someone. Right. Next one, please, Callum. What are we to make of these thousand years of Satan's doom and of this picture of judgment? Well, I think the way we kind of work through this particular text, as in much in Revelation, is to understand that in apocalyptic literature, Revelation is, we, we need to know that it's, it's symbolic language. That so much of what John sees, he describes to us in symbolism, in figurative language that if we took as kind of, this is what he literally saw, this is what will literally happen, this is how he saw it, therefore this is what it is, we kind of get ourselves in all sorts of problematic places. As we've looked at all the way through the series, that the best way of understanding Revelation is to see his language as symbolic. It's not to say that it hasn't got truth in it, clearly it has, that it is speaking truth, that this is God's revelation to us about what is happening and what the destination of humanity is. But in understanding the symbolism, and we use this all the time in language. So if you have a friend who says, I'm really late for my next appointment, I must fly. You'd be a bit surprised when your friend left when they get in a car, not a helicopter. Do you see what I'm saying? That we use language, I must fly, to mean I'm late, I've really got to hurry. It's not, we don't interpret it literalistically, that there's a symbolism to it. They're not going to sprout wings and flutter away. That we use language with metaphor. I think this is what is very often going on in Revelation. Maybe that's just a helpful little reminder. Secondly, understanding that our theology, in other words, what we think about God or our ideas, actually affect behavior and attitudes and actions. You may think, well, what's this millennial business got to do with me? Good question. But your view on these things actually kind of filters into our kind of living this stuff out. If you think that as the post-millennials do, that there's just going to be the advance of the kingdom, that's the open ground, it's going to be a day of glory and of, of the goodness of God and the power and reign of rule of God before Jesus returns, the post-millennial view, you then have to ask yourself, well, when is that going to be? There's been 2,000 years, two millennia, where it seems there isn't this 
unhindered reign and rule of God, it seems to be that alongside what God is doing, and he's doing amazing things, there seems to be the ever-present wickedness, evil, depravity, awful things happening that we have to give account for, don't we? That every generation, every century has seen horrific things happen, none more so than last century, and even in the 11 and a half years of this millennium, this century, you've seen some awful things happen. If you believe that Satan is bound and locked away, how do you account for the presence of evil? This view was held for, in, particularly in the 19th century, the post-millennial view. And the Christians who held that view really got very discouraged when they were kind of thinking, yeah, we can go into all the world and we can take kind of nation upon nation for the gospel. We'll see the advance of his kingdom and all the kind of reign and rule of God that things will get better. Suddenly facing the calamity and the catastrophe of the First World War, of the Second World War, of the advent of nuclear bombs, of suddenly saying, how, how can this be? It seems that evil just sticks with us. And so they're forced, if you hold this particular view, of saying, well, it's not yet. And you just live in this demoralization of thinking, well, in the future age, we don't know when it will be. It will be okay, but now, to use a colloquialism, sucks. What about um, the other views? Well, it kind of always pertains. If we believe in the premillennial view, that Jesus will return and then reign for a thousand years, it kind of means that, well, we're not there yet, are we? He's not come yet, in the, se- in the sense that people read Revelation 20. Therefore, we kind of live in this <clears throat> kind of time that can be really um, pessimistic. Where is God? When will he come? It's, it's awful. Until Satan is bound, we can't do anything. We live powerless lives. We live hopeless lives. We live lives that are frustrated until that day. Now, it's majoring on hope, but there's not very much of the now of God, his action and his presence. Do you see what I'm saying? That our view on these matters actually shapes what we do. If we think it's not till Christ returns that the glory of the kingdom will be established, what's the point of going to tell other people? What's the point of going across uh, the street and across the oceans to witness for Jesus if it's not going to be effective? Our theology, our beliefs about God, really do have a practical outworking. If you believe like the amillennialists, to say, well, it's not literal or symbolic, it's not this kind of strange construct. If you believe that Christ has sent his spirit at Pentecost because he's conquered death and risen, and he is coming back, and your kingdom come and the increase of his government, it means that he has given us his spirit in the here and now. We're not waiting for some glory day or some rapture moment. We're saying, right now he's given us the Holy Spirit. Right now he's given us everything we need to serve him and see the kingdom of God and yet live with the tension that he is returning and there is evil and Satan is bound but not fully powerful. But we have to play a due recognition of what it is like to be against an enemy, to be in a battle. Then we will not be disheartened when things go against us. Nor will we be over-triumphalistic, but we will be committed to his cause and say, yeah, I want to be part of this, his reign and rule. Does that make sense? 
good stuff. I think I'm doing all right. If you're with me still. In interpreting passage, another clue, text, co-text, and context. That sounds a bit grand. What does the actual text say? What do the, the bits around it say? And also the context. Where is it in the Bible? What is it doing? Now, notice it says about millennium six times in this passage, but this is the only place in the entire kind of Bible when it's talking about the second coming that the thousand years is referred to. Hear that. I'm not saying there's not a thousand years mentioned in the Bible. There are, but not in the context of the return, the second coming of God, the establishment uh, and of judgment. So you're asked, we have to face this question very often when we're dealing with difficult passages. Do we take the difficult passage, get so stuck into it and kind of understand it in, you know, in isolation for the rest, that then we have a real struggle to fit in all the other teaching? Or do we understand the particular text and say, yeah, there's some difficulties in it, but how do the other texts relate to it? How do the other texts help us in our interpretation, in our understanding? How do they fit together? I think that's a much healthier place for the church, or else you end up in some very peculiar places, because there's some very strange bits of the Bible if you rip them out of context. I heard about this illustration uh, of people just picking on certain bits and making a theology of them. It's a joke again, so get ready to laugh. <laughs> Help me on this. Someone kind of went through the Bible and picked out with their finger and thought, I learned some theology. It said, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Ah, oh, that's great. But later on, someone sees this person smoking and uh, kind of, t- you know, a hundred a day habit. I said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I went to the Bible and I put my finger in it. And it said, in the Old Testament, smoke fills the temple of God. <laughs> you see, it's a silly illustration, but how easily, if we lift stuff out, you can end up in a very peculiar place. So, Scripture talks a lot about the second coming. Jesus has parables about it. The end of uh, Matthew's gospel, chapters 24 and 25, as he's teaching, refers strongly to it. First Thessalonians has portions of it. All of the gospels talk about how Jesus will uh, raise, be, risen, be, be raised to life after three days of being in the grave, and he will disappear from our sight physically, but he will come back. He will come back. Jesus said really quite clearly, nobody except the Father knows when. But he will. He will return. He will bring to an end this, this age of evil, this age of rebellion and opposition. He will do it. There will be signs of the times, he said. There will be earthquakes and calamities and rumors of war and distortions of the truth and deceivers. That will happen, make no mistake. Don't go chasing after the new idea or the new kind of take on theology. Stay resolute on the apostles' teaching of Scripture. Don't be distracted left or right. He will return. These things will happen like birth pains before his final coming and judgment and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. I think all those Scriptures begin to help us understand what is the best take on it? And you probably guessed this already from what I've said. Uh, but I, I personally take an amillennialist view. And we go, uh, Callum, there we go. You're at liberty to choose what you want, but what you believe has a great bearing. I think an amillennialist view, this view that Jesus has written, the, the Holy Spirit has, 
has come. He's empowering his church to live for him, and he will return at some point, this thousand years. We don't know how long it will last. It's a long period of time. We know that, don't we? We've had 2,000 years so far. It's a long period of time before he will return, but return he will. Hallelujah. And actually, this is the predominant orthodox. That just means the accepted position of pretty much all of church history. It's only kind of at various points and small groups who have kind of got into these other views of pre and post and dispensationalism. It's more uh, uncommon in the vast span of church history. That it seems to take into account a better view that as I've described. What about these symbolisms of, uh, of death and of Hades and the seas? The, the figurative language here is saying, death has no fear for us. Hades, the place where the, the dead reside in, in ancient thought. Equally, the seas is a place that, you know, if you died at sea, you didn't have a burial. You were kind of lost into the depths of the ocean. I think what the, the vision John is recounting says is that there's nowhere that is beyond the reach of God to raise and restore and bring back. Nowhere is beyond his power, even the depths of the ocean where no one has been and seen, and it's a fearful place. Even the place of Hades, where the dead reside, God has power over them, and they will be done away with. Hallelujah. It's a statement of the power and the goodness and the, the, uh, the advancement, the reach of God. To say these things will be no more. They do not stand in ultimate opposition. That God's rescue and power and salvation is broad and wide. Speaks of judgment. You know, there is a truth, and we looked at that a bit last week, and again this week in your thinking. There is a day when all will be held to account. Who are you? Do you trust in Jesus, God's son? Do you? You know, this Revelation 20 and all the complexities of millennium and pre and post and all that makes it very clear that everyone will stand before God. And we will be either secure and celebrating or God will separate us. I know where I'd rather be. You know, I can't understand. I mean, it isn't getting you by, by getting you to be terrified to be in the kingdom. Although, people do become Christians because they realize. It's not an unvalid reason to become a Christian. Understanding the truth. That we're not just going to die and that's it and pie in the sky when you die and all that. We will be held to account of do we believe, have we trusted Jesus or not. And those that haven't will be thrown and separated away into the lake of fire. Let's just move a little bit on to the so what. Frederick Nietzsche, not a man renowned for his support of Christian things, had this great little quote. Those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. Why is it that Christians in a dark age, in places where persecution is heavy, like the churches John was writing to, could shout hallelujah, and even at the threat of being beheaded and martyred, would dance? Why? 
because they've heard the music. Why is it the revelation and the pictures, even though they're complicated and obscure, actually engenders for us hope that inspires us because we hear the music? Don't you? That we know the destination, we know what God is doing, we know the plans that God is unfolding and will bring all things to an end. There will be new heavens and the new earth. I'm stealing next week's sermon. But it's a great picture and a reminder that in these dark days, in these days of travail, of persecution, of opposition, of Satan with some power, we still dance. Some little clues. Uh, just uh, if you want to learn a bit more about what that picture's obscuring the music. Anyway, the next slide has uh, 10 little helpful things. I won't go through all of them, but. Um, I'm kind of really grateful for Simon in his book, The Lamb Wins, for this little summary. And he goes into all this a lot more detail. He's a great chap. You've met him if you were at our church weekend two years ago. But he kind of summarizes some of these things that help us just get a handle on Revelation 20. And I love the last bit. The end is not in doubt. Christ has the last word. The Lamb Wins. Two little stories in closing. A woman had been diagnosed with terminal illness and been given three months to live. So she decided to make herself ready and get things in order. So she contacted her local minister, her vicar, and had him come to her house to discuss her funeral. She told him uh, which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she'd like read. It was in a church tradition where they'd have an open casket in the church. Everything was put in place and decided on in advance as a celebration. And just as the minister was preparing to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something really important to her. She said, there's one more thing. One more thing. What's that? I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And the kind of minister looked a bit puzzled. Why? And she said, well... You've not been asked that before. It's a surprise, isn't it? He says, well, to be honest, yeah, I am puzzled by that request. It's the first time. She said this in explanation. In all my years of attending church socials and suppers, I always remembered that when the dishes of the main course were cleared away, someone would invariably lean over and say, keep your fork. It's my favorite part because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or apple pie and cream. <laughs> something wonderful and something with substance. So I just wanted to tell people who see me in that coffin with a fork in my hand, I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And I want you to tell them, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. Faith makes every difference in living and knowing there's no fear in death. There was a woman who was buried under a 150-year-old oak tree in the graveyard of a church. And in accordance with the woman's instructions, only one word is carved on the gravestone. Waiting. Let's pray.